Well, this is, in many ways, uh, the third and last part of, of a three-part uh, sermon, let's say, the, that looks to the ministry of Paul in, at Corinth. And just for the sake of those that perhaps have been uh, unable to hear the, the previous two sermons, uh, just a, a little bit catching up or a little bit of context, we have looked uh, at the city of Corinth. Paul is in this city, this privileged location between uh, two busy ports. Corinth was perhaps the most important commercial city of its day in the south of Greece. But it was also a city known, it was a city known for its commerce, for its trade, in the, uh, for its industry, but it was also a city, perhaps unsurprisingly, being a city uh, of many uh, visitors and many uh, trading in much trading in and out. It was also a city known for its immorality. It is often the case with port cities, with cities of trade, that sexual depravity was pronounced very pronounced there. To add to that was the fact that the, perhaps the deity, uh, the pagan deity that was uh, the main deity of the city was Aphrodite or uh, Venus. And the temple of Venus or Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility, in, according to Greek and Roman mythology, was located there, the main temple. According to historians of those days, there was... Uh, um, cultic uh, prostitution happening every night the the women priestesses that served in the temple would descend upon Corinth on the town on the city and they would perform what we know the moral reputation of Corinth therefore for many centuries even to the day of, of when Paul was there was one of great immorality to say that someone was, uh, to use the word to Corinthianize, was to say that what someone was uh, acting immorally. To call someone a Corinthian girl was to call someone a prostitute. So Corinth was vile to its core. I've said that in, in the Greek, old Greek plays, uh, of, often, the, or if not always, uh, the, whenever there was a character, a character in those plays that was from Corinth, he would know what to expect. He was a drunkard, lascivious kind of person. He was a city vile to its core. He was known for it, and he was kind of proud of being such a city. He was a debased city. He was the center of trade and travel. Sailors going through it all the time, caravans. It was the fitting place for the entertainment of lust. And there was another thing that I don't think I've mentioned up, up until now that Corinth was famous for. It was at Corinth, that, or around the Corinth region, that was uh, where they held the Isthmian Games. Perhaps you don't know about the Isthmian Games, but they were just or second only to the Olympic Games. 
It was a, uh, every three years, I believe, in the, the region of Corinth, the people would come together and they would uh, watch these games, very much like the Olympic Games, uh, but in Corinth. So it is not too hard to imagine why there was a great need for tent makers, why there was a great need for workers of leather to make tents, because every so often the city would be flooded by a huge influx of visitors from, from Achaia, from Macedonia, from uh, Rome, from all the places to watch these games. In fact, every so often when you're reading through the letters of Paul, Paul uses the language of, of beating, uh, boxing, and running the race, and you wonder if Paul was at the time influenced by these games that he was, uh, that he was watching and seeing and, and seeing the, all the fuss in society. So Paul, last week we looked at the vision that, that the Lord uh, when the Lord came to Paul and encouraged him. And Paul, we're told, continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And then we come to the point or the portion that we will be considering today, which is the rise up of opposition. Eighteen months Paul was there, and Gallio then became the proconsul of Achaia. And this is when Jewish, again, Jewish opposition erupted. Now, Gallio was the younger brother of Seneca. Perhaps you've heard the name, perhaps uh, a long time ago at secondary school when we were studying philosophy. Gallio was the younger brother of Seneca, the great philosopher. Seneca, who who is also well known for being the tutor of Emperor Nero. I don't think he would have put this on his CV nowadays, seeing how Emperor Nero's uh, tenure as an emperor went. But he was the tutor. And so Gallio Seneca, you can see that this man and, uh, was from a preeminent family. He was from an influential family, from an aristocratic family family in his day. Seneca actually said of Gallio, his younger brother, that no man is as sweet to one as Gallio is to everyone. That's a nice compliment for a, an older brother to say. I don't know who, if you have older brothers, but usually older brothers don't say these kind of things. But this one said, he said that he was a, the sweetest man. He, no one was as sweet as him was to everyone. And this is an important verse, just as an aside, parentheses, uh, because Luke tells us that Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. This became actually the most clear and precise method for dating something in Paul's life. We can actually know for sure and use this instance as a peg to date back and forwards the life of Paul. Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia for a period of a year and a half or two years. He was, in a, uh, uh, he was a proconsul from the second half of 51 into, well, in less than a, than a year. For a very short period of time, less than a year, he was uh, proconsul and he had to leave because of his 
ill health. And this helps us to peg Acts 18 in history. This is happening somewhere between second half of 51, early 50. So we can be moderately sure that Paul was around Corinth in late 49, early 50s, to the middle or the end of 51. And again, another proof that Luke is an accurate record taker. He was, Gali was the deputy, the, the, the representative, the governor of Achaia. And it was in Corinth, the, the, the center of trade, that uh, perhaps Gallio spent most of his time as a governor, as a proconsul. It was at Corinth that to this day there still is the tribunal as a, as a remnant, an archaeological uh, site, uh, the tribunal where uh, Gallio would have passed the, this precise judgment. So what, what is happening here? Perhaps when uh, the Jews heard of this new proconsul, and because they were very upset with Paul, uh, and they were uh, opposing him, they thought, well, there's a new proconsul, proconsul a new leader, a new governor in, in, uh, in town. Let's try and finally quench this situation. Let's go to him and make it illegal uh, to be a Christian. And so the, the Jews went up to, the, to Gallio, and they made complaints against Paul. They were saying that this man is teaching contrary to the law. This man is uh, teaching things that are contrary to the law. And it's not the law uh, of the Old Testament that they're referring to here. They know what they're doing. They're going to the Roman uh, proconsul and they're saying, this, these men, especially this guy, Paul, he's teaching things that are against the Roman law. You need to do something about it. When, when was the last time that we heard something like this? Not the last time, in, in, but one of the, the times where we see something like this happen. It's when the Jews went to Pontius Pilate, isn't it? And said the same thing. This man is making himself to be king. Caesar is going to be very upset with you. You need to do something about it. But the reaction of Gallio here is completely different from the reaction of Pontius Pilate, isn't it? Pontius Pilate had a, a, a kind of, I wash my hands, you, you do you, we'll, you judge this matter and I'll wash my hands off of it. But actually, Gallio here, I would submit, has a much nobler action and a much nobler attitude than that of Pontius Pilate. He says, even as Paul was about to speak, he says, well, wait there. If this was a matter of wrongdoing, if this was a matter of doing things wrong, if this was a matter of, of licitness in uh, according to Roman law, I would, I would pronounce and I would be a judge in this matter. But as I, but as I perceive, and here perhaps Gallio already heard Paul being in Corinth and Co Paul being in Corinth for a few months already, perhaps Paul had an opportunity to hear what Paul was doing. Or perhaps he, knowing that this was coming, he researched and he, he, he tried to understand what was happening in these days, in, in, in this situation. He says, well, but as I perceive it, this is not a matter of Roman law. This is a matter of names and words. This is a matter of your own law. This has nothing to do with Roman law. 
It's a matter of semantics for you guys. It has nothing to do with Roman law. Because in Roman law, Jews were permitted to worship uh, according to, their, to the, the Old Testament. They had a special dispensation. They had an exemption. The exemption was sort of, as long as you don't revolt, as long as you don't do any rebellion, uh, as long as you keep to the, to, the, to, the, to the established law of the land, you're fine. We, we won't force you to worship the, the, the gods and, and, and goddesses of our religion as long as you're faithful, abiding citizens. The day you start revolting, we're going to have troubles. That was the, the established uh, status quo of the day. And for many, and really, Christianity being a, a pouring out of, of the Jewish religion, or a, a fulfillment of the Jewish religion, for, the, for, the, for Galio, he was like, that's just a matter of words and semantics for you guys. It's, they're well within the, the Jewish dispensation exemption, so I won't convict them. Galio was not dumb. He knew what was happening. He knew that this was a matter of, of controversy within Jewish religion, or he thought this was a matter of controversy within Jewish religion, so he, wasn't, he didn't get involved. But this is from a human standpoint, right? I'm trying to, to set you up here for the for the seeing God behind the picture. You see, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Paul. Paul had just, uh, God had just promised to Paul, the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ had just promised to Paul that no one would attack you or to hurt you. That his work would be unimpeded at this time. That he would be able to, to, to work freely because there are many people in this city. God was, in this situation, controlling the thoughts and actions providentially of Galio. So that no evil thing would happen to Paul. And the verdict that Galio delivered in favor of the Christian faith, is significant. Because up until now, just think about what we have been reading in the second missionary trip of Paul. After he, as he gets to Philippi, what was the problem at Philippi? Oh, the, the, they are breaking, there was a mutiny. The problem in Thessalonica, turning the world upside down against the Roman law. This has been the emphasis of Luke in this second missionary journey is how is it that Christianity relates to the, the established status quo politically or the established political status quo? How is it that Rome and Christianity engage with one another? And this, for the first time, we see that the answer by, by Gallio the proconsul the governor, is that Christianity is not illegal. It's free. It's not illicit. It is completely free to worship in the way that they want. 
So in this relationship between the, go the government and, and the church, the government and Christianity, there is a significant precedent set. While it is true that there are times in the book of Acts, going back that the government, those in authority were trying to forbid Christianity from being preached. In Acts 4, the, 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 the Sinedrim tried to forbid them to, from preaching. Actually, throughout the book of Acts, you never read about the Roman authorities forbidding the preaching of the word. At times, you could even say that they were being cooperative with the Christian church. Because God was in control. God is in control. God was preventing anything worse from happening. Eventually, yes. Eventually, it was Rome that, that condemned Paul to death. And Paul lost his life at the, the, the hands of the Roman emperor. But it was at God's, in God's time, at a different time, at a different place. At this pl place and time, and this would be a great encouragement to every believer in Corinth, to every believer throughout the, at least Achaia, if not even further. Well, the, the governor said, we're fine. The, government, the governor has given us dispensation. We're fine. We've been vindicated. We've been vindicated without even saying a word. I, I find it amazing that Paul didn't even have to defend himself. That Paul didn't even have to open his mouth. There will be times, as we read through the book of Acts, uh, towards the third missionary trip, that Paul will defend himself. And we can almost imagine that Paul was here already uh, just eagerly anticipating what he was going to say. That, no, actually, what we believe is, is the Jewish religion fulfilled. We are Jews. We are the descendants. We are, we are sons and daughters of faith, of Abraham. We're, I'm, I suppose that was what Paul was expecting to say, but he didn't. He, he was, as Paul was about to open his mouth, Galio just said, it is not a matter for me to decide. It is a matter of semantics for you guys to work it out amongst yourselves. I don't want to be bothered by this. And he drove them out. It's like, get out of here. This is not something that I wish to get involved with. And we know there will come a time from history, not so much from the history that we read uh, in the book of Acts. Perhaps we can have gleanings of it in the book of Revelation. Revelation being written uh, towards the end of the first century. We know that there will come a time where this kind of cooper cooperative or this kind of not being bothered by Christianity will end. Perhaps in a way it was ending in Rome as well at this time with Claudius. Uh, we read from, uh, from, from the historian that wrote the, the biography of Claudius that he expelled the Jews because of, uh, they were being very tumultuous because of this guy uh, called Crestus, which many and we believe was uh, a reference even though with, a, with an error to Christ. But there will come a time around the end of the first century and beginning of the second century that the Roman Empire will rise up in 
opposition to Christianity specifically. Under Pliny, uh, as the governor of Bithynia, at the, in the north of, of Turkey, uh, under the emperor Trajan, Christianity was outlawed in the, in, the, in the beginning of the second century. But at least at this time with Gallio, there is some breathing space. And then finally, we read what happened next. Before I draw some conclusions, as he drove them from the judgment seat, verse, verse 17, all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Lest anyone thinks that I'm painting up uh, Gallio here to be a, a, an exceptionally remarkable proconsul and someone to be emulated and, and to look up to. No. <laughs> Even look after saying these things, uh, I, I believe with a kind of positivity in the, in the actions of Gallio, he kind of balances it out by saying, well, actually... Before any Christian reading this, uh, this letter that I'm writing to Theophilus thinks that Gali was a, a remarkably exceptional uh, governor, uh, let me just remind you what happened right after. After he dro drove them out, the Greeks, perhaps driven by some kind of anti-Semitism, they didn't like the Jews and the Christians and these, these guys. They are uh, very exclusive. They only worship one God. And they're, they're kind of atheistic. They don't believe in our gods. They would call Christians in the first century atheists. Why? Because they re rejected the gods of, of the pagan pantheon. They beat up Sosthenes. There is even a sense of... of uh, anti-Semitism in the words of Gallio. Oh Jews, he says in verse 14, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, oh Jews. There is a, a, a mark of at least not being too happy with them. It's like uh, we would be so much better if these Christians and these Jews and these guys were not here to bother us. So lest anyone thinks that they will get any help from the Roman justice. There is a discouragement here that prejudice and hostility, this prejudice and hostility that was coming to Sosthenes will eventually come to us, will eventually come to the Christians living in, in Corinth, will eventually come to the Christians reading this uh, letter in the first century written, or this uh, reading or it will eventually come to Theophilus, or will eventually come to us. We cannot expect the world to love us. In fact, we must not expect the world to love us. The world will hate us, our Lord Jesus said. But there is providence here. There is God working in the background. John Flavely, he said that uh, God's providence is uh, often only discerned when reading it backwards. It is better read like uh, Hebrew. Uh, he said, reading it, you know Hebrew and Arabic, I think, Ara Arabic as well. Uh, instead of reading it from left to right, in your perspective, you read it from right to left. Um, and... Um, God's providence is often better read backwards, after in hindsight, after things have happened, or 
in foresight after things have happened. So what is the lessons for us in conclusion as these things have happened? I think the apostle was encouraged. It's been the theme of these three, of the, the last couple of sermons and this sermon as well about encouraging the apostle Paul who, who, that came, who came to Corinth with much fear and trembling. The encouragement here is that God is in control. That God is sovereign. That God controls even the hearts of, uh, of unbelieving pagan governors like Gallio. That God is in control of everything. That God does not abandon his children. That God causes uh, his children, his people, those that are uh, connected to the, to the vine, to produce fruit. That God promises to be with us always. Is that, isn't that what he said? Lo, I will be with you always. That is the greatest of encouragements. And God was here with Paul, although uh, we don't read uh, of miraculous intervention from verse 12 to verse 17. We know that God is just there working in the shadow, in the background, transforming the situation. Perhaps one of the, the greatest encouragements for Paul is in verse 17. Although Luke doesn't tell us, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes and they beat him. Sosthenes was the guy that was opposing Paul. He was the, leader, the new leader of the synagogue. The previous one had converted to Christianity, praise the Lord. And this one was the one that now was trying to get Paul to be expelled, imprisoned, beaten and perhaps killed. What is the encouragement? Turn with me. Let's, let's turn with me to 1 Corinthians verse 1. And I do believe this, and I'm not alone in believing this. Many commentators, many uh, pastors, preachers have seen this, and they believe it's the same person. Look at who's writing the, the letter to the Corinthians. It's Paul. But look at who's there with him. The same letter, the same church that was uh, established in Acts 18. Paul, verse 1, chapter 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And Sosthenes, our brother. I think, and uh, I'm not alone in this, that this is exactly the same Sosthenes. That perhaps immediately after few months later, at some point, this Sosthenes that was beaten up by the, by the Gentiles, he came to believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is said that actually Sosthenes is the Emmanuensis, the, the person that wrote this letter as Paul dictated it. Um, turn to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 21. That's why Paul, uh, or that's why Sosthenes shows up in verse 1, because he is the person writing the dictating, or the, uh, the, the technical name is amanuensis of Paul. Towards the end of the letter, actually Paul picks up the pen, and with his own hand, he says, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's, and then he writes, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This last two verses were actually written by the hand of Paul. And it is believed that Sosthenes was the amanuensis and that this, this Sosthenes is the one that was beaten here. And that is amazing. That is encouraging that God's enemy, that the God's enemies, Christ, the, the, the church's enemies can be transformed like this. That he can go from being an opposer, from being a persecutor, to being a brother. Paul himself was a persecutor of the church. And he was transformed. So yeah, Paul was very much encouraged. He was in need of being encouraged. He came with weakness in fear and in much trembling, as he says to the Corinthian church in his letter. But, Paul, but God had other intentions. He encouraged them. He, he, he gave them companions when he had no companions. He provided financially for him when he was trying to, to tend, uh, make tents to support his ministry, to know that he might devote himself fully to the word of God. He gave him his own presence. He came and, and he gave him a vision and he said, My power, my presence, I promise you there are many people here in this cesspool of a city, in this city filled up with sin and vileness. I have many people in this city, Paul. You will be fruitful. Carry on. The encouragement for us, brothers and sisters, is that when we look at Paul, we wouldn't just think of this giant of the faith that was completely uh, <clears throat> unmovable, like an adamant stone, emotionally secure, with no weaknesses. Paul was a weak, weak man, perhaps even physically ill at this time. Paul was human, and he had emotions, and he was affected in his emotions and his spiritual well-being, so much so that his work was struggling. And God comes in and he encourages him. He provides for him. He gives him Aquila and Priscilla, in which two weeks ago we saw that became so much influential, especially Priscilla in the ministry of Paul, perhaps even encouraging him to, to, to set his eyes to Rome. He gave him Silas and Timothy back in Corinth at Corinth, promised a fruitful harvest at Corinth, promised safety and security, promised everything that he needed. And we see that being played out at the end of the ministry of Paul here in Corinth. He still remained there a good while, and next week we will look at it as he returns to Antioch, as he finishes the second missionary journey. But for us, the encouragement is this. Out of the whole uh, ministry of Paul at Corinth is that life for a Christian is not a life that is all roses, all uh, easy-going things. That life in this world is accompanied by, by difficulties, by struggles. That life in this world is accompanied by by sorrowful events and troubling times that our life may be tinged with pain and frustration outwardly that is in the outside in the things that surround us because we have something on the inside 
on the inside of these clay vessels, of these earthen vessels. We have a treasure in the inside, as Paul himself says to the Corinthian church. And that cannot be taken away. And yes, sometimes those clay earthen vessels need to be broken. But when they're broken, just as Paul was broken at Corinth, it's to pour out that treasure to those around them. That oil that was inside, as it breaks, it shows the riches of Christ. Brothers and sisters, our joy, our peace, our strength comes not from our own selves, but comes from the Lord. Comes from our... And the more we trust in Him, the more we rest upon Him, the more we rely upon Him, the firmer, the, the happier, the more joyful, the more accomplished we will be. It is only as much as we rely on Him that we will truly be blessed and happy. So let us learn that. Let us trust Him more. Let us rely upon Him more. Let us not look so much to the circumstances surrounding us in our daily lives. But let us trust in Him for everything. In all of this, what we see is that God is in control that Jesus is on the throne, that he is fulfilling his promise. Even at Corinth, that all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. So therefore, you can go, we can go, as we go out in this week, we can go there and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. Why are we able to do these things? Why are we trusting that we can go out and we can, we can preach Christ and we will have fruit? Because Christ himself said it, that we would have fruit. And it, this is not some kind of prosperity gospel, name it and claim it. It's like, but if Christ said, said that you will have fruit, claim it. Act like it. Believe in it. Trust in Him. What a security we have, brothers and sisters. What a security, what a promise we have. That He Himself said it. That we would bear much fruit. So why are we so cautious? Why are we so careful? Why are we so, so unwilling to take risks at times? Why are we so different from those that came before us? I would submit that there is a culture. And I was just talking about this just before the service. But there is a culture that has unfortunately changed the church instead of the church changing the culture. It is the culture of safetyism. It's a culture that, that, that causes us to be careful about everything we do and everything we, we seek to do because we are very much afraid of what can go wrong. If everyone that came before us was afraid of what could go wrong, we would never have had the gospel go out into the world. If Paul was afraid of what could go wrong, he would have never went out. Because things could go wrong and went wrong. But he had the security and the trust that God was with him. We live in this culture, don't we? 
And this was the, the thought that was on, on my mind. We live in this culture that because there is a, a heat wave, because there is a, a couple of days of stronger uh, temperatures or hotter temperatures, we need to plaster it on the, on the TV that you need to drink water as if someone is going to forget to drink water in the summer because it's hot. But let me just warn everyone, drink your water. Uh, it is the culture that we have, the culture that needs to tell people what to do in every single moment because you cannot trust people to have common sense. And that culture kind of sips through to the church. That's what I'm, I'm not criticizing them. They can do whatever they want with that. It's fine. And please do drink water tomorrow and Tuesday and continue drinking water because it is very important throughout the summer. But it's not so much a criticism of TV doing that. We, we've come, I've come to expect that, that TV will tell us the most commonsensical things to do. The problem is when we become like that in the church. The problem in the, the unfaithfulness and the, the sinful attitude is when we become like that in the church. When we do not trust God to, to overrule, when we do not trust God to undertake for us, when we do not trust God to do and to keep us and to and keep us safe, when we do not take risks for the Lord. The one who has been given power over all heaven and earth continues to be with us, to care for us, to keep us as his people. The God who comforts and encourages the downcast and the sorrowful is the same God we serve. And he continues to encourage us today. He continues to protect us today. He continues to be the same God for Paul that he is for me, for you, and for all of us who trust in him. Through his sovereign providence, he is still the same. So why is it that we don't trust him the same? Why is it that we act like that? Let us change. Let us trust him. Let us be faithful to him. And let us rest and rely upon him. Amen.